The real lessons are learned from failure. After a long hiatus, we're back with episode 10 of this podcast where we interview successful entrepreneurs from around the world on the worst deals they've ever been a part of. Welcome to the Worst Deal Ever podcast. This episode is brought to you by Call Center Cast, where you can learn to launch a profitable remote call center company in the next 30 days. Go to callcentercast.com to learn more. For episode 10, we sit down with David McHale, the affable red-headed software and cybersecurity expert. After working with the Department of Defense, David takes us through an amazing story of constant pivots, lessons learned, and over eight figures in revenue. This was an episode three years in the making, and David and I are great friends, and I'm really excited for you all to hear his story. David, welcome, man. Good to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here, Don. It's really, it's a fantastic experience to be on the show, and I hope that I can share some of my experiences and some of the things that didn't go so hot and what I learned from them to help other folks here, and, and hopefully they can avoid those same mistakes. Yeah, man. Well, so... First things first, man, you know, I gave you a bit of an intro, but tell me a bit about what you're working on right now. Yeah, so right now I'm working on Hailbytes. I'm doing a lot of kind of DevSecOps contract work, so helping people to understand how to be more safe. And that basically has two components. It has that psychological security component of how do you actually help people understand and change behaviors Mm -hmm. so they're not taking risks that are unnecessary and kind of, you know, risking their own money, risking their company's money and potentially putting them out of business. Right. And also helping to automate some of those more technical aspects so that the company doesn't have to spend so much time and, and waste so much time doing the exact same thing over and over and over again. So that's a big part of what we're doing. Uh, we've been able to help a whole, we've helped about 1,213 companies this year just understand that they have data leakages going on and help them move towards kind of better compliance and to more security frameworks that help take a lot of that weight off their backs and help them make sure that they can keep helping in the ways that they're already helping folks. Okay. Well, that's cool. You know, again, that's a huge component and I think it's very apt that you're working on that. You know, in 2020, crazy year. (laughs) Um, So give me a bit about your background in terms of what led you into what you would consider to be your worst failure. So that's interesting. How far do you want me to go back? You want me to go back like how I got into software engineering or how I specifically got into that deal? Uh, let's talk more about background leading directly into the deal. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So this was, let me think, this was around 2017, 2018. And at the time, I was working as a senior software engineer for an, intervo- for an interface, basically for a factoring company. So a company that would buy invoices from other companies and they would determine whether or not it was too risky. So I was working this job, you know, it was was a great team, it was great people, but at the same time, I had suddenly gotten a whole lot more mouths to feed. So I had, you know, Mm. some family members pass away, I had some family members come to live with me, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what can I do above and beyond to make a little bit more money? And I had a past where, you know, I've done affiliate marketing in the past, I've done some internet marketing, and had made a decent amount of money from it, and so I started looking back at those projects and what I'd done, what had worked, what hadn't worked. Around the time of 2018, there was a really, really big traffic source that came around. 
Google had basically exposed access to their push notifications. It made it a lot easier to send push notifications. And I started kind of dabbling in that area around, I guess, uh, November, December of 2017, and started seeing some early, you know, a couple dollars here and there in early 2018, roughly so, there. So tell me a little bit about, because, you know, there's not everyone tech savvy. What exactly do you mean by push notifications? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you get emails and you get calls and you get SMS, and all of those have kind of their own levels of how fast you read it. Now, push notifications are when you open up your phone and you get that, you know, that screen and the menu of notifications shows up, mm -hmm. that's a push notification. When you get something on there from an app or from a game you're playing or from a website you visited to let you know something has happened, check this out. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of on the same level as an SMS in terms of the immediacy and how people respond to it. So I saw that and I started posting like every single day I would post kind of my experiments and my experiences with trying to use this traffic source to reach people. You know, almost like if when email first came out, if you were like, oh, I wonder what I could do with email. Like how could I use email to potentially help people solve problems? I was doing the same thing. Right. So I knew a bunch of companies that were willing to pay a little tiny bit of money for leads, for installs of apps, for completion of surveys, like all this kind of stuff. And so I started talking with them, and I started experimenting with kind of what were push notifications good for, you know, how could I get people to give permission for push notifications, what was an incentive for them, kind of like when you build an email list, mm -hmm. and what actually worked decently well there. So I was kind of starting to explore that and posting about it every single day. So I, I was on a forum called Stack That Money, STM, <laughs> uh, that I know a lot of internet marketers are familiar with. And so I was keeping a journal. Every single day I'd be like, here's what I tried out, here's what worked, here's what didn't, and I was super transparent. You know, down to the like dollar, did it make me money, did it lose me money, did I think that it had legs, did I think it could go somewhere, and that got a lot of attention. So I had a ton of people who were in that community who were like, wow, you're very organized, you're very methodical, you're very analytical, but you're not super good at advertising and you're not super good at buying media. So I had a lot of people who I figured out the technical aspect of it, but I was still very neophyte marketing. I was still very new to driving digital traffic. So doing media buys, some people use pop-unders or pay-per-view or Google ads. So ways that you could kind of get more people into that funnel. And it was interesting because one of the guys who reached out to me was actually very, very famous on the STM forums. He was very well known. He was known as the pop under king. So like the king of pop traffic. We have pop-up ads and that kind of stuff. Okay. And he reached out to me and was like, hey, I see what you're doing. I see it's profitable. And I'd like to, to do a joint venture with you. I'd like to partner with you and see what we can do here and see it's already been profitable enough that you can probably kind of pyramid this up and use the revenue that you're making to fund further ads and not have to take too much outside investment. So he came to me and his deal was kind of like he would put in a significant amount of money at the very outset. He would help to grow it and we'd do like a 50-50 split on profits. He basically helped to scale ads and all that kind of stuff as long as I could help with the infrastructure side. So basically what you guys were creating was a software to be able to make money 
off of a newly established method of push notification from Google. Yep, exactly. So the crux of it was that we were building our own traffic source. So we were using other traffic sources to get people in at the outset, but then we were using our own traffic source, like we control, like if you controlled email, it'd kind of be a similar idea. If you were an email service provider. So if you're like, if there's people that use email in general and then you create a Gmail. Right, exactly. And that's kind of what it was looking like. So we were getting people in and then figuring out, okay, how do we get people to actually use these products? How do we identify their solutions? How do we identify their interests? That turned out to be very complicated, especially doing it really fast and having it scale well, very, very competitive. And I think part of it was because I had posted all those journals early on, we had a lot of eyes on us. So people were keeping really close note of the sites we were using, the domains we were using, the techniques we were using, and really our secret sauce was that we had some, and it's not machine learning, it's not artificial intelligence or anything like that, we had a system for tagging users based on how much they had interacted with us and based on what kinds of messages we sent that they were interested in. So like if it was gaming or sports or vacations or travel, like different stuff like that. So that we only sent them stuff that was relevant to them so that they continued to give us permission. Because the thing with push notifications, it is easier to stop allowing push notifications than it is for almost anything else. It's easier than unsubscribing from an email list. It's easier than blocking somebody's phone number. You really had to bring the value and you really had to be mindful of what your approach was to keep people engaged. So walk me through the process of how someone become maybe a lead for your platform, for what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that we were doing it, the way that we kind of scaled it out is we would have tons and tons and tons of landing pages, tons of landing pages. And they would all funnel back to basically giving permission in one central database. So these landing pages would be all kinds of different topics. And that was a big part of how we figured out what were initial tags that people were interested in. So they joined on the dog landing page, then they're probably going to be more receptive to things like pet insurance, more receptive to things like pet healthcare or pet toys, pet training books, you know, that kind of thing. And so we had tons and tons and tons of these domains. And a big part of the work was supporting all these different websites, making it really easy for the marketing team to add in new types of websites and add in new types of topics and have control over the messages that were going out and then also find new partners who wanted this kind of traffic and were willing to pay for this kind of traffic, keeping it in balance. So finally what's happening here is you're creating a landing page, which is essentially a page online that mm-hmm. someone will visit for whatever reason. Maybe there's an ad leading them to a page. Yeah, and it's typically like, like some kind of freebie that they would get through the push notification. And then they would enter in their phone number. Mm-mm. No, so in the browser, it would basically ask for them to allow push notifications. Wow, okay. And so, so it'd be like a one tap. So they'd get to the site, there'd be some reason for them to sign up. They would hit allow push notifications, either you know on the bottom of their screen if it's a mobile device, or in their desktop if it was you know a desktop computer, okay. and it would allow us to send them messages. And so we would send the freebie, and then slowly start sending the messages that were related to that interest. So okay. try and kind of target that, 
make sure that it was continuing to add value for them. Okay. Well, that makes complete sense now, and that's pretty cool. I actually didn't know that there was a desktop component before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the desktop, it was interesting because the desktop component was, like, when you get push notifications on your Mac, they show up in the upper right or the lower right of your screen. And when you get a new email or you get a message or you get a Slack or whatever, it looked just like that. We were trying to figure out, you know, how do we get people to engage? We found that desktop traffic was worth way less. It was worth like a tenth of what mobile users were worth. Mobile users were much, much faster to engage with Mm -hmm. those push notifications. And a part of that, I think, was that on desktop, those push notifications disappeared in a couple of seconds. But on mobile, they'd stay until they were dismissed. Right. So going into the beginning of 2018, you Mm -hmm. know, you're getting going, you're partnered up with marketing experts. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what happened? <laughs> so it was interesting. Basically, I was still working a very demanding full-time job for this invoice factoring company, helping to lead a team there, helping them to like tackle these big issues. And at the same time, I was dealing with kind of the technical issues of this rapidly growing platform. So this platform's push platform the first month like January was sad, you know. <laughs> uh, we started out this partnership And we were like, split everything 50-50 after the profits. You know, a lot of that was kind of doing the initial partner development, finding offers, setting up landing pages, figuring out the architecture, and figuring out, you know, how are we going to handle so many requests? Mm -hmm. Because this was something where we would send folks up like a bunch, as long as people kept interacting with the messages, we would keep sending the messages and kind of let them set the tempo. They were dismissing them, we wouldn't. But if they were clicking on them, using stuff, and getting value out of it, we would keep sending the messages. Mm-hmm. So for some of the really heavy users, we'd be sending like 20 or 40 messages a day. Wow. For people who weren't you know, using it so much, we'd be sending like a message a week. So kind of, I was doing a lot of this work to make sure that we stayed on people's good side, to make sure we stayed on their good graces, and the money was coming very slowly. Mm-hmm. Like it was something where I was making, I guess, like $500 a day with the invoice factoring company that I was working with. And I was making like 50 cents a day with push notifications. <laughs> and it was really slow. So we set up a lot of this groundwork and it started to speed up as we got into like February. There was really a turning point in mid February where we had, I guess, like 20 or 30 partners who had agreed to work with us. We had a couple of niches where it was pretty well developed. So we had a a lot of ways to monetize beyond just sending value and sending content. We had a lot of companies that were willing to pay for leads or willing to pay for sales or willing to pay for for trial subscriptions, anywhere from like $2 up to like $50, depending on kind of what the offer was. So there was a point in, I guess, around mid-February where suddenly that value balance completely switched. And I went from making, you know, $500 a day with the invoice factoring company and that being really, really amazing and really good for the kind of engineering work I was doing to making like $750 a day with the push subs. We'd gotten everything in place and the guy that I was working with to do media buys kind of saw the light. He was like, this is working. It's staying profitable. It's predictable. And he, he got that kind of thing like, I know if we put, you know, $1 into this, we're going to get at least $1.10 out. So he started putting in, you know, $700 a day in ads. From that point, that brought some really big challenges that caused issues with our databases, issues with our application servers, because the amount of traffic jumped. 
it became kind of complicated because the guy that I was working with, when he was doing media buys to like buy all the traffic for a website mm-hmm. and send it to our websites, he'd be doing these and there's no way to turn it off. He'd be doing this and it'd be like, for the next month, we're going to buy all of your website's traffic. And they'd come to the agreement and kind of set that up. And then there was no way to turn it off. So I was still working uh, at this like very, a little bit more than a full-time job. And then also trying to basically put out fires and help with scaling and help to basically redesign as I, I'd get like a couple days notice from him. He'd be like, hey, we're going to double traffic. Hey, we're going to 10x traffic. Hey, wow. we're going to start spending $5,000 on ads. Hey, we're going to start spending $10,000 on ads a day. Hey, we're going to start, and, and it got to this point, we got to capitalize on this. So he'd be checking with me to get my permission to spend this money. Right. It was like our pool of money. But it was really like, we have to take advantage of this because so many people are trying to steal the code that we have. They're trying to steal the model and try to use it themselves. And it got up to the point where he was spending, I think at the, at the very zenith, uh, or at the very that the highest point, we were spending about thirty thousand dollars a day on paid ads, and by the time we got to about five thousand dollars a day, I gave my notice at my job. I was like, I can't be here troubleshooting these issues. And I gave them like four weeks' notice, and I trained the team that I was leaving and to like you know documented everything and gave them all the offboarding materials. But I went to my boss and I was like, I am losing money by being here. If something goes wrong during the day. And this guy is spending $10,000 a day on ads. I'm losing more money over like a lunch break of not fixing this problem right. than you guys are going to pay me all week. Right. Just so, didn't make sense. So how fast would like trajectory of you going from, you know, the uptick in mid-February to where you're like, I need to put in my notice to getting crazy? It was like the end of February. It was re- It was really, really fast. What? Uh, and it, it was something where basically like once it, the model had been proved out and we'd kind of done like these smaller scale tests, the, the guy that I had coming in who was coming in basically as the big money and the guy who knew media buying and the guy who knew marketing and scaling, he wanted to go like straight to the wall because we could see that a lot of folks were competitive with this model. And so it meant a lot of change very quickly. He flew me down to Dallas. He was located in Dallas. And we were like basically working together, doing strategy sessions, doing like basically retooling the infrastructure, figuring out how are we gonna scale, what can we do to, to stop people from stealing this, you know, what can we do to, to really make this work and keep this working. And I mean, one of the, and it was hugely stressful because <laughs> I was basically on call all the time. If something went wrong with this infrastructure, and by the time we get to like, I guess April, May, two months down the line, we were dealing with millions of users. And we were dealing with millions of users who were really engaged. So we're talking about not all of them, but probably a good chunk of them. Because the people who weren't interested tended to fall off pretty quick. And so we were left with kind of like a core. I, at the at the top, 3 million engaged users and more fluctuating around like 2.5 million engaged users. But people who were potentially receiving, what is that, 50 million to 100 million messages overall per day. It was a huge volume and it was a huge challenge to keep track of it and to keep track of each of those users' interests, kind of the revenue that they generated and how engaged of a buyer they were and have all of this running at massive scale and at massive availability. Because anytime that a site went down or anytime that messages weren't sending on time, it was very, very, very expensive for the business. Right. 
So basically what would happen is over the course of a few months, you went from, let's say, close to zero users to a few million users, tens of millions of notifications that your system is sending out every single day, and you have to, like, throttle up the bandwidth as fast as you can to support that, which I can't even imagine. And since the traffic coming in regardless, if the system's not supporting it, then you've already spent that money to get traffic, and you literally can't do anything with it because it's lost. Right, so it meant that we had to have perfect uptime. And with some exceptions, we did. We had extremely high uptime. That was something where, you know, it was, thank goodness, I worked on mission critical systems in the past, in my past engineering, and I've used Amazon Web Services a lot. And so I used every trick that I knew to reduce the load on the databases, reduce the load on the application servers, help scale without having to have servers ready and running help us scale really, really fast, basically break everything down into microservices, basically distributing where things could fail and making sure that we had backups at each point where they could fail. Because I mean, it's also, you know, if your app servers are down and people click a push notification and it doesn't take them to the page that has the content or the page that has the offer, that is also a bad experience for them. It heightens the risk that they're going to be like, well, screw this and unsubscribe from those push notifications. Wow. So there were a lot of places in that chain where technically it could fail. It was exceptionally challenging on top of having people, you know, trying to steal our software. Like I saw my code all over the place. So many other marketers and the JV partner that I was working with would send me sites all the time. Guys from Russia or guys from Eastern Europe who were taking our code, taking our delivery platform and trying to basically use it this was really what spelled the downfall because this was all over the course of 11 months, kind of the rise in January and February and then the fall in around November and December. Okay. And we started seeing guys who were stealing our code and not just using it to advertise and not just using it to like connect you know, people who had problems with solutions, but started using it for malware and right. started using it to, to distribute nasty stuff. That was around the time when Google started to take notice. So that was probably only a few months into it. I guess we were in like August, so seven, eight months into it that we started to see that and Google started to see that Mm. and they started making changes. So they started making changes to push notifications to make it harder to get the permission, to make it easy, even easier to unsubscribe, to auto-prompt users to unsubscribe. And we started to kind of see this fall off. And Google a couple of times cleared out all the users basically reset permissions or subscriptions. So we would still have them in our database, but they'd be like unmessageable. Wow. And we had to rebuild from scratch a couple of times as Google tried to combat basically the cybersecurity threat of bad faith groups that were using it to try and distribute malware. So over the course of that, I guess, 11 months, mm-hmm. we made a lot of money. We made about $13 million in revenue over the course of those months and a lot of that was kind of concentrated in like August, September, October before it really started getting hit hard but it, the kind of the margins got thinner and thinner and thinner as we had to rebuild user base and Google started kind of resetting them more and more frequently as more and more criminal groups started coming in and really like abusing the crap out of push notifications and so now I mean push notifications are still around but very different from how they were. Mm-hmm. And it's very possible that they're gonna disappear entirely in you know, the next couple of years. 
a, from a website perspective anyway. Not from like if you have an app installed and it's reminding you of stuff, but from a web browser perspective, mm-hmm. like much, much, much harder to use in that way. I would say possibly impossible to use in kind of the way that we were using them and the way that we were kind of connecting, you know, buyers with solutions. Right. So what happened essentially with that, you know, you retained a certain margin and you like built it as fast as you could, which it, I mean, I can't believe how that pace is just crazy to me. Yeah, I was um, not sleeping very much for, I mean, most of 2018. Wow. <laughs> so what was your, around what was your margin when things were going pretty good? And what did they end up shrinking to? Uh, when things were not going good. <laughs> so we literally had days right at the outset where we were tripling our money every day. And that was really the point in like February where my partner was like, we got to go all in on this. Because he would, you know, he was starting to put a couple hundred dollars a day and then a couple thousand dollars a day. There were times where he would put in, like at the, at the peak, put in $30,000 and get out $90,000. Wow. Which was just like, well, yeah, was absolutely bonkers. Right. And that was, I mean, played out and averaged it out to, at the, at the really, really great time, 100% back to 300% back. And then as time went on, kind of shrunk down to like 50 to 75% and then down to like 10 to 25% margins, kind of fluctuating under where we were losing money on operating day, especially when the user base started getting reset without the user's consent, but at kind of the behest of Google. And it was something where we realized we don't really have a platform here. You know, we have, we are a platform at the mercy of another platform, you know, like we are completely built on Google. We weren't operating on iOS with push notifications. It was all on Android devices. So it was really, it became exceedingly clear, like Google has the, the final say here. And whatever they decide, we are really kind of at their mercy. I mean, there were a couple mistakes. And I'd be curious, you know, if there's a particular focus, you'd be curious to hear there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a crazy roller coaster, And I know that you clearly learned a lot from a technical standpoint. But I guess in terms of if you could break it down into a few principles as to what you might not do differently if you had to do this again. So what I might not do differently, so, so I'll, I'll hit that from two sides. One of those was I started bringing on technical assets, so other developers to help me, and it was kind of like the mythical man month. So anybody here who has, has ever read you know, programming books, when you add folks to a programming project, there is a ramp time in something that was so exceedingly tight of a timeline and so fast turnaround and so fast pace, mm-hmm. that really slowed me down. Because I brought on a team of four guys to, to help with some of the infrastructure work, help with some of the front-end development work, help with some of the back-end development work. That turned out to be a mistake in such a time-sensitive environment. It, it really caused a lot more problems than it solved. Unfortunately, I mean, it was a completely remote team. Communication wasn't too much of an issue, but when we were working on, like I was working on like an agile basis on like a week-to-week delivery basis and sometimes day-to-day delivery basis, that, that really slowed us down. Right. From, and otherwise, technically, using AWS, using a lot of their auto-scaling infrastructure was a godsend and was a huge win. Very, very good decision. I would do that again. Right. The marketing and advertising side 
And there, I think there were a lot of things we could do differently, but I think the one core thing that would have completely changed the outcome of push would have been having recurring products or recurring commissions mm. that we were selling into. Because if we had sold not $13 million, even if we had sold far less, we sold $13 million of product. Overall, we probably took home about $600,000 worth of that, split that between me and the JV partner. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of stress, more stress than if I was working as like the CTO of a company that was not, you know, of a, like a mid-market company that was not so much of like a startup thing. So I learned a lot. But in terms of like the money we took home wound up in my bank account, well, I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> from, from that perspective, having recurring revenue, even if we had sold $1.3 million of annual recurring revenue instead of $13 million of just one-off revenue, I think that would have been a game changer. And it's something where it would have given us enough padding and enough money that I don't think there would have been quite so much pressure I think that it would have been, we would have been able to take more time on those technical resources to bring them up to speed. Mm-hmm. I think that we would have been able to put more money into developing for other platforms, so like iOS push or taking those partnerships and developing entirely new traffic sources. Mm-hmm. I think it would have taken a lot of the pressure off if we'd had that predictability. One of the reasons we scaled so fast and one of the reasons it kind of burned out so fast at the end was when we were completely beholden to the day-to-day responses of the users. So it was that one, you know, very transactional sales model. Uh, It was that one kind of one sale and you're done. Um, So if we had like membership groups or or some kind of better thought out back end or had a JV partner in there who had had experience in kind of creating a back end for a user base would have been very different. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, great point, and you know we talked about this to a certain extent, obviously while you were going through it. But I hadn't heard this before. I think it's a great takeaway. You know, you guys were focused on sort of getting that top line revenue as much as you could, and of course you couldn't predict how fast potentially criminal sources would come in and start throwing bad traffic at this, taking your code and using it for bad purposes, right? It happened a lot faster than we expected. Yeah, I can only imagine how fast. But yeah, you know, if you have something where you're selling a bunch of money up front and you feel like you have a subscriber base because they're in your database, but Mm -hmm. if you don't have the ability to actually reach out to them, then are they really your subscriber base? Yeah, that is is such a good point. And like we, we thought that we had a back end because of that subscriber base and because right. we've seen folks were so engaged so we didn't put a lot of time and planning into the extension of that back end or moving them off of that platform because we incorrectly thought that we had more control than we did we thought that we had because the analog the analog that we had was kind of like an email list you know like you build an email list of yeah. users and because email lists there are so many different email providers it's tough to see. I don't think email will ever die. Right. So it was really, it was it really blindsided us to see push kind of die. But it was because it was all through one. You know, it was all through Google. It was all through one provider, and so they had the power to make sweeping changes that Google can't really make those kinds of changes to email. You know, yeah, right. you can't really make those kinds of changes to email. So we thought we had it back in, but we were we learned the hard way that we really didn't. Right. 
So I guess the takeaway there is if you are signing people up on an annual contract as opposed to, you know, you get the sale and then you move on, mm-hmm. then you would have essentially had a more connection with those users. And so if the initial contact was taken away, you still have the ongoing relationship. Yeah, and that, I mean, that was one of the other lessons was, so every product that we sold, and we thought this was really clever because it let us try a lot of different things, mm-hmm. and it kind of uncoupled us from a supply chain of having to fulfill services and products. Mm-hmm. Everything that we sold was on an affiliate basis. So we were taking a small chunk upfront of you know whatever uh, business we were driving for these companies, but the companies really made out far better. Like the companies that we were supporting really came out super, super far ahead, especially some of the companies like, I mean, we were doing video on demand for Netflix at one point and driving them users and then getting paid for signups and trials. I mean, that worked out great for them because they were the ones who had that direct relationship with that customer, not really us. And so we were serving as a connector, but we were not really building a long-term relationship because of the way that we were only serving as a connector. Right. That makes complete sense. Wow, what a story, man. <laughs> what a story. I mean, yeah. from something that's like, oh, you know, there's something to this. And then it's like, wow, this is scaling very well at a few hundred dollars. Wow, mm-hmm. this is scaling very well at a few thousand dollars. And then suddenly that $30,000 a month yeah. and a two-week period of going from, oh, I'm starting to put some work into this. To I have to quit my job. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I was I was working on it pretty much through uh, November, December, January, and it was really February where uh, you know I, I got that I got more of that expert help in, you know, aware of my flaws and like as much as I wanted to be really really fantastic at media buying, I hadn't done it at that scale. So I brought an expert in, and that was really kind of what blew that up on that side. You know, sharing my experience being very transparent, sharing my flaws, and finding somebody who you know had strengths that matched that, it just grew so fast. And I guess one point there too is I moved away entirely from affiliate products. An affiliate product, to me, cannot really be a core business. And so many of the affiliate marketers that I spoke with at that time as we were going through and building partnerships and working with other folks, like so many of them operate on that. You get paid for one action you perform and then the person doesn't really know you. They know the company that right. you know, got them to perform the action with. They don't really know you. So there's not a lot of glue there. So, so many affiliate marketers I saw were kind of feast and famine, you know, where they did almost that same, usually not to that quite that same level, but where it would like blow up, and they'd make a whole bunch of money, and right. then they'd have no idea how to make, how to continue. And they'd be kind of like hunting around trying to find a new product. And that, I mean, that's why I moved, like, I don't do businesses anymore that are not recurring products in some fashion, mm-hmm. that are not relationship-based, and that I don't have at least a, a fairly high degree of control over the fulfillment, because it's a burden to do the fulfillment. It's harder, but it means you have so much more control to make sure that the people you're helping are successful and to fix things when things go wrong. Because right. when you're an affiliate and something goes wrong, and somebody complains to you, you have basically zero power whatsoever to solve that problem, you know, to save that relationship. Right. So if you got someone in the Netflix and then Netflix starts messing up, you can't say, hey, Netflix, fix it, please. <laughs> right. And I mean, I can say that. They're probably going to say, 
gonna, it's going to like go through some help desk person and, and probably never reach anybody who could really do anything about it. Whereas, you know, if you're fulfilling it, then you have a lot, you have a lot more power to make things happen and make sure that person is happy. And what I found in business is people, a lot of the time, they're not that upset if you mess up, but they're very upset if you don't fix it when they point out that you've messed up. Right. Like a lot of people are kind of forgiving in that way, and they'll you know they'll bring it to, to your attention, or especially if you can be proactive in some way and find out when something's not going right. And as long as you you know are honest and apologetic, you work to fix it and make it right. It typically is not the end of the world. Affiliates don't really get that opportunity though, right. and it's really kind of even if they get pointed out, you know, hey, this didn't work out the way that that it was supposed to work out. They don't have a lot of power there. All right. Well, so those are some great takeaways, and I'm glad that you were able to share them with me. Really awesome. I really got some good nuggets out of that. And based off of what you said, it does seem to be a bit like what you're doing with Hailbytes. So tell me a bit more about Hailbytes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I took so much of what I learned there and applied it to Hailbytes. And Hailbytes was something where it was less of a big connector, lots and lots and lots of different issues and more that in the engineering work that I was seeing, I kept seeing kind of the same problems come up. Kept seeing people fall prey to basic technical issues that were just a little too time intensive or a little too mundane and repetitive to deal with, and that's mm -hmm. kind of the DevSecOps side. And I kept seeing people who made mistakes or made choices that they felt were more efficient to get their work done, mm -hmm. but at the cost of security because they didn't understand how policies were kind of designed to protect them or they didn't understand what risk they were taking. And that's kind of the psychological security aspect. So everything that I designed with Hailbots, and we do, we work with some partners um, who help us with the fulfillment aspect, but it's something where there's a much tighter relationship. Like mm -hmm. I'm going into companies and I'm talking, you know, with their whole executive staff, I'm talking with their fulfillment team, and I'm talking with their marketing team, and mm -hmm. kind of inter really interviewing the company before we decide to work with them. Everything that we offer is kind of in response to a critical need that I've seen firsthand out in the world, that I've seen a lot of businesses struggle with, and most of them are recurring services. So phishing simulations to teach people what it looks like when a criminal is trying to trick you by SMS or email or you know by calling in and pretending to be somebody else, mm -hmm. and also technical services to help people do like secure code review that is really often overlooked and really often kind of swept under the rug help them to do that in a really intelligent way, in a really highly automated way, so that people can kind of just get the useful stuff out of it and not have to do all the boring stuff. And right. then a big part of what we do is provide like infrastructure that comes with support, will help people do a lot of security processes kind of on their own, and then if they need any help, we have it baked in so that they can come to us and we'll charge like a retainer fee kind of like you'd have a lawyer, uh, like you pay to a lawyer, kind of how you pay to like a marketing agency, right. where they can come to us with those questions and we can help move them towards either compliance, help them get new business, or security to help them reduce the risk and reduce the risk of having a data breach or having you know, the FTC come in and sue them or have the attorney general come knocking on their door. Right. Well, that's awesome, and glad that you've taken that and sort of done that, and I feel like it's a combination of what you've been sort of working toward for a long time. I want to back up a little bit and, you know, just talk a bit conceptually, right? If you were to give advice to someone 
that it's looking into maybe something like what you're doing, right? Like affiliate marketing or engaging in on some new gold rush or some new technology or platform that is coming up. What would be your advice for someone in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I would recommend would be if you're on the affiliate side, building, like really doing your due diligence, building strong relationships and making sure that the products or the services you're working with are A, actually going to do what they say they're going to do and B, that they are recurring in nature and that you're able to get some commission off that. It's going to make it much, much easier for you to provide good support. It's going to make it much easier for you to provide kind of quality growth and business development and for you to grow your business. So some, like I would look at problems that are recurring in nature, that are a need versus a want. So something that's really urgent. I mean, you see a lot of industries now that are kind of collapsing. You see a lot of industries now that are flourishing, like legal, finance, healthcare, and teaching are all doing really, really, really well now. So especially in this pandemic, I would be looking at those industries that are kind of recession proof or recession resistant, and they're solving urgent needs versus kind of like, you know, entertainment. Right, one-off entertainment or one-off wants, and really focusing in on those to make sure that you're setting yourself up for success. And you're not just setting yourself up for success like me with Push, where it was like, you know, raining money for 11 months and then a complete and utter drought, and I had to build a completely new model, look for a completely new kind of way to make money after that. I went back to engineering for a while to figure out, you know, how I could make something like Hailbytes work. So that, I mean, that would be my advice. Okay. Something that is recurring, something that is urgent, something that is still needed in this kind of remote era that we're in now, still needed in this era where folks are much less inclined to spend money. Right. Well, that's sage advice. And again, man, I, I really appreciate you being on here. This is a very interesting, very interesting story. So, you know, we got a chance to talk a lot about Hellbyte, which is awesome. If someone wants to learn more about you or about Hellbyte, where do they go? For Hellbytes, if you go to Hellbytes.com, we've got kind of our, you know, some free offers and stuff, some nice free security stuff, lots of educational material there. If they want to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn. It's LinkedIn.com slash IN slash David Hailbytes. I'm very, very happy to talk about any of this. I do a lot of mentoring with kind of new, you know, guys who are getting into startups, guys who are starting their first business, and even guys who are trying to figure out like how sales or how cybersecurity, uh, what a career in that looks like, and kind of what the options are right now. So I'm happy to field any and all questions. Feel free to reach out there. You can also reach me by email at david at hailbytes.com, and that's H-A-I-L-B-Y-T-E-S dot com. All right. Well, David, again, great having you on here, man. I can't wait for the people to freaking hear this. I think that your point about focusing on recurring revenue models is great. I have stuck to that myself lately. So thanks a lot again. Have a good uh, rest of the 2020 coming up. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Donald. I really appreciate you having me here on the show. And I hope this can help somebody and, and kind of help them avoid some of those mistakes and help them have a great 2022. All right, man, take care.